Hello, everyone. This is John Byrne with Business Casual, our weekly podcast at Poets and Quants. Thank you for joining us. With me are my hosts, my always co-host, Maria Wickvilla, the founder of Applicant Lab, and Caroline Diarte Edwards, calling in from France. <laughs> Lucky her. Yeah, she abandoned me in California <laughs> to go to France. Wow, and I am jealous, let me tell I'm you. sorry, John. <laughs> Caroline, of, Caroline, of course, is the former director of admissions at NCIAD and is the co-founder of Fortuna Admissions. So an interesting thing has developed this admission cycle, something that we really haven't seen ever before, and that is schools announcing that they are test optional. UVA Darden started this. Now it's expanded to MIT Sloan. There are a lot of other schools that have also announced test optional policies, including Rochester Simon, Georgia Tech's uh, Scheller College of Business, Maryland, Wisconsin, Rutgers, Northeastern. And you recall that in the extended rounds during the pandemic, MIT, Kellogg, and McCombs at UT Austin also were doing or open to test optional admissions. So we're going to talk about when should you take the test and submit it, even if you are applying to a test optional school? When shouldn't you? And do we expect this trend to continue? Caroline? I think for most candidates, if you're a serious candidate, I would suggest taking the test anyway. Um, I mean, for the time being, most of the top schools still require the test. So it may be that MIT will waive it. But if you're looking to apply to other top schools, then you'll need to take the test anyway. And, you know, frankly, it's a good indicator of motivation and commitment to the process. And, you know, what, what I've heard, at least from discussions with INSEAD, is that you know, a number of the applications that they received earlier in the year when when it was optional to provide the test test results before submitting an application was that, you know, there was a there was a great deal of variability in the quality in that pool. And quite a few people applied who didn't have the right profile or who weren't well prepared. And so, you know, if you apply without the test, you risk being seen as someone who is potentially uncommitted to the process, not fully motivated, perhaps throwing in a speculative application to see, you know, whether you make any progress in the process or not. So I think in most cases, it makes sense still to take the test. I mean, having said that, there are candidates who have great profiles and good undergraduate track records, but just struggle with with standardized tests. And so in that case, if you think the test is not going to reflect well on your candidacy and you've got you've otherwise demonstrated really strong academic credentials, then in that specific case, then you know perhaps it would make sense to apply without the test. Now MIT in announcing the change has a really interesting phrase on their website about this. They say that if in fact you decide to take advantage of their test optional policy, it will be viewed by them quote, without negative inferences, close quotes. Maria, do you believe him? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I believe that it won't necessarily be seen with a negative inference. If they're, if they're claiming that, then, you know, Rod seems like a pretty, a pretty straight-laced guy, so I'm going to take yes. him at his word. Uh, but just because there's no 
negative inference taken, it also means that there's no positive inference to potentially balance things out. For example, if you did not attend an elite university, if you did not have a 3.8 or above, if you did not really shine academically in undergrad, there's also no test there to balance that out, right? And so you won't have the test score now to necessarily rescue you or to demonstrate that you can compete academically with the people from the more quote-unquote elite backgrounds. So I think that there may not be a negative inference, but there also won't be any, without the test, you won't have that positive data to support a narrative you might want to present to them. Right, exactly. And I imagine that if you don't submit a test, there has to be greater weight placed on your transcript, your undergrad university, as you pointed out, and also the courses you've taken. So they're going to be looking at the courses, how rigorous were they? They're going to be looking more closely at your overall GPA, and they have to put more weight on that if they don't have a standardized test score. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the absence of data, like you need you need some sort of data. I think I think it, I, I think it's important to say that I think test optional does not mean brain optional, right? It doesn't mean, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't mean like academic. Like just because we're not accepting the test doesn't mean that we're not looking for people who are very bright or people who are you know you know academically optional. Like no, it's still a school. Like you're still going to have to take classes, and so you still have to show that you're going to be good and, and succeed in those classes. And so yeah. I can, you know, in the absence of one data point, the I can imagine sort of the pie, the you know, the pie shifting much more heavily so that the weightage of the undergraduate transcript is going to be that much more important. Right. So if you have a GPA under, let's say the class average, and you have gone to a highly credible, you know, world-class university, it doesn't have to be Ivy League, but maybe near Ivy, maybe public Ivy, or just really well-known and being highly selective, maybe you get away without submitting a test and you don't have to worry about it. If you are below the GPA class average, if you have not gone to a school that is highly selective, I would think you should take the test. You agree, Caroline? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And in any case, you, you probably want to be applying to other schools. And for the time being, there are some schools, as you, as you said, that have waived the test. But if you're aspiring to go to MIT, then you probably have other similar schools, you know, in the M7 that you're looking at as well. And for the time being, at least, they are not test optional. So you're going to have to bite the bullet at some point. That's true. Now, in many of these cases, there are so-called waivers and uh, instead of just being completely test optional. And in some cases... The waivers might allow you to submit an old SAT or ACT score uh, when you were applying to undergraduate schools. It may allow you to uh, submit an expired GRE score in the event that you already have a master's degree from another university. So there there are other ways that they're trying to look and make sure that if they admit you, you can complete the program, particularly the quant and the core, without much difficulty. So there are some kind of like safeguards being put in place by some of these schools when they do evaluate their candidates. And I know the dean at UVA Darden made the point that, look, if someone applies to my school and he has a law degree from Yale or he has a master's in computer science from MIT or Carnegie Mellon, do I really think that I need a test score to basically evaluate whether or not that person can come into the program, succeed? complete it and be successful in life. And the truth is you can't say no. 
I mean, that's really true. And there are a good number of candidates who do have master's degrees who then go for their MBA degree. And, and if they've gone to a credible university that is highly selective and completed the graduate program there, I would think that you really don't need a GMAT or a GRE score to vet them. Now, the, the, all of this is about bringing down barriers to apply. And we know that most of the elite schools up until this latest year, and this varies and we'll get into that, have seen a decline in MBA applications. And second tier schools, that decline has been in effect for probably four or five years instead of just two. So some of this is about saying, hey, we think there are a lot of candidates out there who see that standardized test as a real big hurdle to climb. Some of the schools are saying, you know, these tests favor people who are in a certain socioeconomic background and and therefore can afford a one-on-one tutor who might bill out at 500 bucks an hour. They can afford a, a you know, fancy Manhattan prep class. They can take the test multiple times. They can even take time off from work, even quit their jobs, as some international applicants who really want it do, and study nonstop for a month, two months, and that can affect their score. And so, therefore, it's unfair to those who don't have the money to buy a tutor or go into a class, don't have the time to take off from work, or people who the test seems to basically downgrade. And that includes some international candidates where English is a second language. It includes women who always have better grades than men, graduate and undergrad, but on standardized test scores, for some reason, tend to score lower. And of course, it would include underrepresented minorities who uh, score lower on the test. What do you two say about that? So I, I agree with that, but I think also the admissions committee are already taking those factors into account. So they will certainly already be expecting a higher GMAT from certain profiles than others. And, you know, taking into account professional background, international background, and so on. And so, so I think, you know, that, that flexing of the requirements should already be happening in the process. Now, maybe subconsciously some candidates or at least, you know, in the mind of the file reader, it maybe it does weigh against them more heavily than it should if their, their GMAT is below the average for the class. And that can perhaps be explained by their, their profile and their background and so on. And maybe they aren't being cut the slack that they should be. Or maybe they're being deterred from applying in the first place because they feel that, you know, their GMAT is below the average for the school and therefore they don't have the confidence to apply. And therefore, you know, they're perhaps uh, sort of ruling themselves out before they get to the admissions committee. So, you know, there may, there may be some of that going on. It'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens because, you know, in the past, HBS abandoned the GMAT for several years and then came back to it. So maybe this is a second wave of schools attempting to, to do away with the GMAT or um, at least, you know, add additional flexibility to the process and, and see what happens. You know, it's an interesting experiment to do. You know, the schools did try this with the, the final rounds it, it, for the class that's just started. But, you know, those circumstances, there was just so much, you know, turbulence in, and craziness that it's, I think it's difficult to draw many conclusions from, from those few months. So perhaps MIT decided, you know, let's, let's just extend this, run this for a full season and see what difference it makes, right? It's 
kind of fun sometimes just to try a different policy and see see how things play out and you know they can always uh, i mean rod has said that this is a temporary thing and this will this is for this year only um and then they will um you know at least what they're announcing right now is that then they will go back to the former policy but you know, I'm sure they will want to see how, how it affects their applicant pool. And, and if it does so positively, then they might might want to carry it forward. And the context here is important. I mean, I think a lot of this is happening because of the pandemic, because of complaints about the online test, because of the fact that all the test centers still are not open. And as Rod Garcia at MIT uh, Sloan said, they're concerned about a second wave of the pandemic that will yes. shut down all the test centers again. So you, you, you have a lot of other things going on here, and I think that's also behind the fact that I think it's over two-thirds of the universities in the United States undergrad are test optional now, including most of the Ivies. So the pandemic is playing a very key role in the experimentation uh, that's going on. Maria, do you think we're going to see more schools go test optional in the future? I think in the in sort of the immediate one to two years, I would I would think so, right? Because I think a great deal of it is because you hear so many horror stories about the at home test, or you know, my proctor didn't show up, or yeah. you know, I lost the internet access, or you know, all kinds of crazy things. And so I think, you know, I I would I would really it would be really horrible if someone who would have done well on the test somehow just gets dealt a bad hand with I don't know some proctor that is you know, just disappears in the middle of the test or what have you. And so, so yeah, I think, I think the the schools kind of have to do it given that getting to take the test is not nearly as easy as it has been in the past. And so I think this is an accommodation that they will continue to make. You know, one admissions director for a top school told me the funniest story about this. She said that one of their applicants was taking the online test, was about a quarter of the way through it. And the UPS guy walked up to the door, <laughs> rang the doorbell, and the test froze and couldn't get it back to work. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, Think no. about that. <laughs> yeah. no That's problem. a UPS delivery you didn't want. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, we basically set out who should, who should take advantage of a test optional policy and who shouldn't. And I should also point out a little more context on this. Schools have been inching toward this for quite some time, and the evidence is in their other programs. Many executive MBA programs, for example, do not require the GMAT or GRE or even the executive assessment. Some other schools now, including Columbia Business School and NYU, are accepting the executive assessment in lieu of a GMAT or a GRE. A lot of the part-time MBA programs do not require a GMAT. In fact, even at NYU Stern, one of the largest top-quality part-time MBAs in the world, is now test-optional. And on many online MBA programs do not require a GMAT or GRE. And when they do, they're incredibly flexible in waiving the requirement based on the number of years you have in the workplace. A good example is UNC at Chapel Hill, which has had an online program for some time. And I believe for most of the years that it's had that program, the majority of people who get into it, get into it without taking a GMAT or a GRE, which is totally... Uh, the opposite of what happens in their full-time MBA program. So that's kind of interesting too. Now, another thing that's happening right now, of course, is schools are releasing their class profiles. 
And while there is still a number of key schools that have yet to do it, including MIT Sloan, Kellogg, Chicago Booth, and Stanford, most of the other schools have, in fact, given us a clue as to the quality and the makeup of their incoming classes. And the biggest surprise I've seen just happened at University of Michigan's Ross School of Business, a terrific uh, business school, often in the top 10 in all the rankings. And unlike some other schools, which have seen a fairly significant increase in apps, and in some cases, even larger enrolled classes than they have had in the past, Michigan saw its applications drop by 14%, big double-digit drop, particularly because in the two previous years, they've uh, suffered declines in application volume as well. And in the enrolled class, instead of enrolling 421 students, as they did last year, they're down to 358. Now, part of this is they were fairly generous in granting deferrals to their international students who were having trouble getting student visas or were affected by travel restrictions to the United States. But these are uh, really surprising numbers. Caroline, what do you think of them? Yeah, I am surprised because what we'd heard from other schools is that they had seen quite dramatic increases. So it's definitely an outlier. It may be that, you know, the the, the very top schools have benefited from from the downturn much more than, than schools further down the ranking. And, you know, that suggests that there could be a further shakeout in the market. And we, we've seen that over the years where the top schools have continued to flourish and attract very strong demand despite the ups and downs of the economic cycle. But some schools further down the list struggle more when, when things are, you know, when there's uncertainty in the market. And so maybe that that is having some impact on, on Ross. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure that the, the thing about the STEM designation, international candidates, you know, that that's a big concern. And uh, the concern of international applicants to be able to stay in the U.S. and, and, and get a job afterwards, uh, you know, it's very valid concern that has that, that has really affected the, the the volume of international candidates applying to the U.S. schools. So, yeah, we should mention that Su Jin Kwan, who's really one of the best admission directors in the business school community, bar none, noted in the story that we ran that the fact that the school was a little bit late in getting. STEM designation caused a fairly significant fall off in international applications earlier in the cycle before they got it uh, as more international applicants basically put their bets on the schools where they had a STEM option. And that contributed to the decline in applications, which is kind of a interesting situation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, I wonder if also the concern, particularly about the international applicant pool, is is what is driving the the change that we've discussed at MIT. And maybe they're looking to shore up applicant volume, particularly in the international market. Because I think the growth that the schools have seen has largely been driven by domestic applicants in the US. But the international students are such an important component to the whole experience for everybody in, in the classroom. And so, you know, it's a loss for the whole community if you, if you don't have those international students participating. So, yeah, that's really that's really true. And, and you know, most of the international scores are are not as hung up about the GMAT as the American schools because they don't have to deal with the U.S. news ranking. Mm. So I think the U.S. news ranking does make GMAT scores in particular 
GRE2, but less so because, you know, the formula for, for how they incorporate that into the ranking is a little vague, and I have questions about that. But, you know, schools are very hung up on those rankings because they do affect application volume, they do affect alumni donations, and they even affect your yield in the U.S., and the international schools don't have to worry about that because that number is not figured into the more prominent Financial Times ranking the way it is with U.S. News. So that's another thing. I think, you know, Michigan's decline also could be, because I've been watching this over the last three to five years in terms of who's who's suffering the biggest declines in applications. And it looks like the Midwestern schools are having a tougher time of it than the coastal schools, Hmm. you know, and I don't know, you know, why that would necessarily be so other than the fact that more and more people want to be in a New York, you know, a Boston, San Francisco, Los Angeles, as opposed to the middle of the country, in part because of the economic growth and the disparity of that growth on the coast versus the middle of the country. And I wonder if, in fact, some of this can be attributed to that, which to me uh, represents a fantastic opportunity for a really solid applicant to get a world-class MBA education at a school like Ross when the admit rate is up, the applications are down, and the school's in a position to basically give entree to many qualified applicants. As we all know, the vast majority of people who apply to these schools are more than qualified to attend and do well, but because there's so few seats, they get rejected. Maria, do you think that's a strategy for people? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, certainly. I think I think it could be a great opportunity for people to, you know, look at look at the programs that have been having these perhaps irrational declines and say, well, hot diggity, here's my chance to, you know, <laughs> to, to, to throw in my application and and increase my odds of of getting accepted. I, you know, I definitely think that there's something, there's something to that. Especially at a time where we have said several times that we think this coming admission season is going to be significantly more competitive. There are more people coming in on the basis of your business, my business, on the basis of uh, what we saw in the extended rounds at, at most of the schools where, you know, Wharton was up 21%, UVA Darden was up 25%. Incidentally, UNC at Chapel Hill up 43%. There were some schools up 60%. I think it was Rice University. So in in a highly competitive admission season, it may be a really smart strategy for some people. Sure, you you pick the schools that you really want to go into and you know maybe, maybe the stretch schools and you might get in, you might not. But wow, if your chances of getting into a Michigan Ross are significantly higher than they would have been just because of some fluky thing, man, take advantage of it. As Maria says, hot diggity, go for it. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) Great tip for the day. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. All right. Maria, thank you so much. Caroline, thank you. Really appreciate it. Enjoy France. I'm super jealous of you. (laughs) I'm I'm afraid to even get on an airplane, for God's sake. So all kudos to you for having the courage to move your whole family over there for what will be a stay until I think the new year, right? Yeah, that's the plan. How lovely. This is John Byrne with Poets of Quants. You've been listening to our weekly podcast, Business Casual. Thanks very much.